Hello and welcome to the DIY Investing Podcast. My name is Trey Henniger and I'm your host. In today's show, we are going to answer the question, what is the role of a catalyst in value investing? If you use catalysts in your investing process, if you're a value investor and just kind of wanting to expand your understanding of what a catalyst it is, whether you should use one and how to think about it, this is the episode for you. In today's episode, we're going to dive deep into this question and answer all your questions on how and when you should use a catalyst in your process, what are the strengths, what are the weaknesses, and what you need to understand if you think about catalysts as a value investor. So this is the podcast where I'm telling you what I think on this process. And so my take is going to maybe be a little different from what you've heard before. But let's answer the question, what is the role of a catalyst in value investing? So the idea for this show started with a Twitter conversation I had with a fellow listener and kind of giving me feedback in some ways on my value trading podcast. So in some, you could think of this partly as a value trading podcast part two, but also just generally how to think about catalysts. Well, what is a catalyst? I think that's where we need to start first. And a catalyst is something that can cause change in an investment. And that could be either a business catalyst or a stock price catalyst. And I think those two are very different. And so a catalyst in terms of the mental model of catalyst is something that allows a process to change quicker. It reduces the activation energy of a reaction. This is comes a mental model that comes from chemistry. But as investors, we use this term pretty frequently, simply to mean something that causes something to happen faster. And this can be very helpful as investors, because especially in the value investing community, if you can achieve your target rate of return in a shorter time period, you can supercharge the internal rate of return of your investment. So from an IRR standpoint, if you can cause, let's say, a multiple re-rating in two years instead of 10, your returns are going to be substantially higher. So for instance, if you were to buy a stock that is trading at 50 cents on the dollar. So you think it's worth, you know, maybe you buy it at $50 per share and you think it's worth $100 per share. If it goes to $100 per share, but it takes 10 years to do so, and there's no dividends along the way, then you're going to get a 7% rate of return on your investment. But if that can occur in two years, then your rate of return investment is going to be 40% plus because you occurred over a much faster time period. And so this is why many people look for catalysts, because if they think they can find something that can cause that multiple to create faster, then their returns can come a lot faster. Now, you start to enter into problems, though, because first you have to determine what the potential catalysts are, and then you need to know, okay, are those catalysts actually going to happen? Like what are the what's the probability that the catalysts happen as I think they do? And then if the catalyst happens, what's the probability that the actual outcome leads to a positive the positive result that I expect? Like just because a positive business performance occurs doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to see the stock price change. And so there's a lot of parts in this chain where things can break down and where the value that you might ascribe to a catalyst might not be as much as you think it is. But at the end of the day, just that ability to have something occur faster 
especially if you're in the process of trading stocks and or even investing over a multi-year time period, anything that shortens the period in which you have to hold the stock while still allowing you to achieve your return is going to lead to a higher annual rate of return. And that higher annual rate of return can be the thing that leads to outperformance in the investment marketplace. So I personally use catalysts in my investing process. They're not for everybody. And I used to disparage the use of catalysts. I thought seeking out catalysts or thinking about catalysts either wasn't necessary or was distracting or didn't add any value to me to understand or seek a catalyst. And if you go and you read various investing write-ups or investing forums, there's almost always the mention of a catalyst. What will cause other investors to recognize the value in this company? And so I think there's an importance there because although investing, as the way I like to define it, means that you don't need other investors to recognize the value in your company in order for you to get your return. Basically, you're buying free cash flows and those cash flows alone will be sufficient to provide you the return you seek. It's certainly nice. It's a bonus. It's a nice to have when other investors recognize the same value. If something can come along that allows other investors to see what you see, they'll bid up the price and that could allow you to achieve your target return faster. So the way I'm going to say catalyst should be used, and that's going to be kind of like the focus of this podcast, is I think catalysts are an appealing call option. And ideally, they're a free call option. There's something that you don't want to pay for. So you don't want to buy a stock where the catalyst is built in, where it's you're paying a premium for the catalyst. Instead, you don't want to pay anything for the catalyst. You want to get the catalyst for free. It's kind of like the positive surprise that the market doesn't expect, but you expect. There's something um, informational advantage or analytical advantage that you have where you've determined that something might occur that the market hasn't taken into account. And that gives you the possibility, not the guarantee, but the possibility that your returns could come faster than you base it on. So why did I use 10 years in my example? So I use 10 years because it's very important. When I do an investment analysis, I assume I'm going to own the stock for at least 10 years. And so one part of that analysis is I'm trying to determine what a company's worth. What is a fair value for the company? And I think in terms of earnings yields. And you can frame it in earnings yields or earnings multiples. I like to use multiples when I talk because people think about PE multiples like a 15 PE multiple, 20 PE multiple, or 25 PE multiple. But when I actually think about my process, I use earnings yield. So I'm using the inverse. So I might say a PE multiple of 15, but I'm thinking about an earnings yield of around 6%. And like I might say that a PE multiple of 20, but I'm thinking about an earnings yield of 5%. And when I say a PE multiple of 25, I'm really thinking about an earnings yield of 4%. So I might look at a company and say, I think this company is worth an earnings yield of 4%, which means I think the company should trade at a PE of 25. I think that's its intrinsic value. But today, it might trade at a PE of 12.5. 
And so what I'm saying and what goes into my analysis of the valuation and what I think my potential return is, is I'm going to analyze the hold return and I'm going to analyze the trade return separately. And so the hold return is what are the cash flows that I'm going to earn from that business? And so if I'm buying a company and the PE is 12, like my example there, then that's about an earnings yield of 8%. 12 and a half, that would be an earnings yield of about 8%. But I think it should have an earnings yield of 4% or PE of 25. That means that maybe absent growth, I'm going to get 8% return from the cash flows. And then I'm going to also add in whatever the growth is. And I'm going to add in multiple expansion. And the multiple expansion is going to be my trade return. And so let's say I think that I have an 8% earnings yield. I'm going to grow at 4%. So 8 plus 4. And I'm using a simplification here because there's a cost of growth component. But we're going to ignore that just for simplicity of math here. So I'm going to say 8 plus 4 is 12%. So now my hold return is 12%. And then I have this blank term for the... Um, trade return that I get because I'm selling the stock to another buyer at a different price. And that trade return can be either positive or negative. If I sell at a higher multiple than I bought for, then I'm going to have a positive hold return. And if I sell at a lower multiple than I bought for, then I could have a negative return. What I do in my personal investing process, and the reason I insist on only buying companies at a PE of 15 or less, is I never want to have a negative trade return. I always want to have a positive or zero trade return because I evaluate my investments solely on the hold return. And so hold return takes up 80% of what I spend this podcast talking about in previous episodes. I'm trying to optimize for buying a good hold return. I'm trying to earn my return from the holding period, from simply holding good high quality stocks because the whole idea I talk about over and over and over again is you want to find stocks you're okay concentrating in. You want to find stocks where time is on your side. The longer you hold it, the better. All of that's important, but today... We're focused on the trade return, and that's where catalysts come in. The trade return can be very, very important because the trade return will make and break the difference between you earning an average return and you producing alpha, you producing an outperformance over the market. And so I think setting up your process to have high potential for good hold returns and high potential for good trade returns is valuable. It's not required, but it's valuable if you really want to make the change and the jump from, say, earning you know, 8, 10, 12% rates of return, which are good hold returns, and you want to get into the range of 15%, 20%, 25% annual returns. And you can't really achieve those very well without also getting a boost from a trade return. And so you can achieve 15%, 20%, 25% annualized returns if you incorporate some trade return into that and some level of turnover in the portfolio. Now, it's nobody guaranteed, and I think it's actually quite difficult. Um, Investing for hold returns is a lot safer, a lot more reliable, and I think that's what most investors should focus on. But again, today's podcast is on hold return. So let's think back to that 10-year example. I'm at a PE of 12.5 today, but I think the company should trade at a PE of 25. 
That means I expect the multiple to expand 2x over the course of 10 years. Well, using the rule of 72, we can say that if it takes 10 years to double, that will add about 7% to my annualized returns from that multiple expansion. So now I have 7% trade return that I can add to my 12% hold return. And so now I have seven plus 12 is 19% annualized returns, assuming I buy the stock, I get the growth I expect, and I was also able to trade it for double the PE multiple, which means by making that one investment decision, I'm able to earn a 19% annualized return over 10 years. And if you do that, if you earn a 19% annualized return over 10 years, that's essentially gonna create a future value of 5.6 times your original investment. So if you invest $10,000, you're gonna end up with $56,000 from that 19% annualized return over a 10 year period. That's an amazing return. But what if you could do it faster? And so this is the period where catalysts can become valuable. Because in that example, I'm not using a catalyst for my trade return. I'm just, there's no catalyst other than valuation. You bought a company below its value and eventually people will recognize the valuation. This is the standard value investing philosophy. You have reversion to the mean. Basically, you have the efficient market hypothesis playing in a little bit here that the market eventually recognizes value and brings companies to trade approximately near the types of multiples that they're worth. I have my concerns with those theories, but I think over long enough periods of time, they do tend to play out in that way. Well, a catalyst can be supremely valued because even without the catalyst, we're saying, okay, well, maybe in this example, I get a 19% annualized return. But what happens if it happens faster? Well, if I can have a catalyst that shortens my holding period from 10 years to five years, instead of a hold return of, I mean, sorry, instead of a trade return of 7% per year, now we're gonna get a trade return of 15% per year. Again, we're still assuming our entry multiple is 12 and a half and our exit multiple is 25. And so by going from a 7% to a 15% trade return, now I can add that to my same 12% hold return. Again, we're saying this the whole time, the biz, what's actually happening inside the business in our example is the same, but there's something that causing people to recognize that the price, the company's worth more. And usually these types of catalysts are actually business catalysts and they do change the underlying business economics like faster growth or whatever. And so I'm not implementing that in my example because it would make it for a little more confusing, but the example can still communicate the same information. If we're able to change that from a 10-year to a five-year holding period, and our trade return goes from 17 7% to 15%, now we can add a 15% trade return to a 12% hold return, and we get a 27% annualized return over the five years. And that's where it gets really impressive because if you take the 27% and you do it over five years, now you've been able to turn your 10 grand into $33,000, but it's only been in a five-year period, and if you're able to do that again, you're gonna have um, substantially more money at the end of the period, because now your 10 grand would turn into 100 grand, not, not 100, yes, 
Yes, your 10 grand would turn into a 100 grand by the end of 10 years instead of 56 grand if you're able to do that repeatedly. Now, the repeatedly is hard, but it introduces why there's value in a catalyst. Because anytime you're able to shorten your holding period and achieve the same target exit multiple while retaining the same hold, pe- hold return, you're going to increase your total IRR. So that's the value of a catalyst. And I think I've communicated that very well. If you have concerns, you have questions, please feel free to hit me up on Twitter. Reach out to me again. That's at Trey Henniger. Um, or you can send me an email at Trey at DIYinvesting.org. But I really want to touch on some of the problems here. Where you can make a mistake is only focusing on a catalyst, trying to always have a catalyst in your investment. My favorite company that I own does not have a catalyst. I think it should double its PE multiple, but it doesn't have a catalyst. But I still own it because the hold return is sufficient to be attractive, and I think it's a really good hold return. And I think there's high reliability in that, low downside, etc. But I think people have a problem because a lot of times... People spend more time thinking about and focusing on what's the catalyst going to be instead of focusing on what the hold return is going to be. And this is where it can draw you away. If you spend too much time focusing on a catalyst as the center of your investing process instead of a bonus, remember, I don't want to pay for a catalyst. It needs to be a bonus. It needs to be a free call option. If you think about it differently, you can start to make mistakes. Because if you find stocks with catalysts, but you don't find stocks that have a lot of value and they're just stock catalysts, they're not actually business catalysts, they're not parts of where the business is going to get a lot better, the business is going to start making a lot of money, but maybe it's focused just on making the stock more attractive. I think that leads you down some paths that can lead to mistakes and potential losses. I'll give you one example. One of the most common stock catalysts that I see, and I'm using stock catalysts specifically because it has no impact that's positive on the business itself. It's just about the stock. Is what's known in the in the investing circles as uplisting. This is where you go from ba- maybe being on the OTC markets to moving up to the NASDAQ listings. Or this is where you go from being listed in Canada to being listed in the United States. And the idea is by moving from one stock marketplace to a higher scale, a higher level marketplace, you'll increase the liquidity in the company and in the stock. And you're going to increase the um, potential for passive buyers into the company and various things like that. The problem is twofold. First, it's expensive to uplist. Anytime you go from OTC to listing on the NASDAQ or the New York Stock Exchange, the amount of fees the company has to pay goes up and it goes up significantly. Especially for smaller companies, this can be very dangerous because now they're spending money, real money, real cash on something that doesn't give them a business benefit. The only reason they would need to be on there, and I say need very clearly instead of want, is if they're trying to raise capital, if they need to issue shares, if they need to issue debt in order to grow. 
And I tend to avoid those companies already. I don't want companies that need to raise cash in order to grow. I want companies to self-fund their growth. I want companies to generate internal cash flows, use those internal cash flows to create organic growth and grow on their own. I don't want them to need my money to grow. I want them to be sending me money. So the first problem is they're having to the company's having to spend money to achieve this benefit. And the second problem it does is it doesn't give them a business benefit. It gives them only a stock benefit. And that's awareness and access for more shareholders to be interested in buying their stock. Can this work? Yes. It has happened to work well in the past. But the problem is, is you have to filter then between the companies that are uplisting because of their inevitable growth as a business. It's no longer a big deal for them to spend the money on it. And they're just getting bigger and bigger. And it's relevant then that they go to the next size up versus the companies that are doing this prematurely. They don't have profits. They can't support it. And they're just trying to build interest in the stock so they could dilute and dilute and dilute faster. You have to be very careful with something like a stock-only catalyst. So what's a business catalyst? Well, the, I'm going to use an example from one of the stocks that I own and I've talked about before is Solitron Devices. So Solitron Devices is really interesting. The, they have actually executed a business catalyst very recently in like April, May, maybe it was June, but I think it was like May Uh, or April of 2021, they announced that they were purchasing a new production facility for their business. And they would be moving from their current production facility, which they rent, to a smaller production facility, which they would own. And this had two key benefits for them. The first is they're decreasing the size. And so by decreasing size of the space, they're actually going to be saving money on the amount of space that they have. And two, once they're in a smaller space and they're saving money, you know, on the space aspect, they're also going to be preventing further increases in rent because now they're paying a fixed mortgage cost instead of a rising escalating rent cost. This is what I would call a business catalyst because at the time it was announced, you don't know exactly what those savings are going to be other than some broad range. Well, there should be cost savings. We should be able to be a little bit more efficient and things like that. But it's a business catalyst because after a few quarters, now they've been able to come out and announce that they're going to save a million dollars a year in expenses because they're moving facilities. They're moving from a facility that was costing them half a million dollars a year in rent to a facility where they're going to pay a mortgage in the range of 200 grand per year in rent or not in rent in mortgage payments. But some of that's a principal payment, and they're also, because they're having less space, they're going to pay less on utilities, and then there's also other efficiencies that they've been able to gain from this so that all the cost savings add up to like a million dollars a year. Well, that's a significant savings for a company that was making between two to three million dollars of profit beforehand. So now this catalyst that's going, that has occurred in the business that you couldn't have predicted in advance or maybe you could have, but I didn't predict in advance, is going to lead to anywhere from a 33 to a 50% increase in underlying profitability of the business. Because now if they're going to save a million dollars in cost, you know, assuming fixed sales, and of course I think in the long-term sales are going to increase, but assuming fixed sales and otherwise all else equal, instead of a 2 to $3 million business, you're going to go to a 3 to a $4 million business. So that one decision 
that one capital allocation decision by management is a 30 to 50% one-time boost in profits. That's a catalyst. And it's the sort of thing that can cause the price multiple of a company to quickly accelerate. Because once you do something like that, it catches people's attention. It catches the attention of other investors of saying, hey, one, profits are going up. We want to buy when profits are going up. Two, we have a management team that's making decisions that are going to be good for investors. They're recognizing ways to save investors money and they're taking action to do it. All of those things can lead to a multiple expansion. So not only are you getting the benefit from higher profits, now you're getting the benefits from a better trade return because it's catalyzing a multiple expansion faster than it otherwise would have occurred if nothing had happened. But the whole point of this catalyst was that it was unpredictable and you couldn't plan exactly how much would be saved. Imagine, for instance, the other side of this, where I was trying to predict before a catalyst came out what the impact would be. And let's say I thought that the catalyst was going to be worth, that some catalyst would come out in the next 10 years that would lead to a 20% boost in profits. Well, that's pretty attractive. 20% boost in profits is a good idea. Um, I mean, that would make the company 20% more valuable. The problem is, is it's not guaranteed. And so I have to think, okay, well, what's the likelihood of that? And it's not even the likelihood. It's like, okay, well, it could happen sometime in the next 10 years. Well, if it happens this year, then it's worth 20% to an investor on a discounted cash flow basis. But if it happens in 10 years, then it's only worth like 2% because you have to then amortize that 20% one-time gain across all 10 years. And it's like 2% a year for 10 years. So it's something in the middle of that. And then, okay, well, if it's maybe only a, you know, maybe there's only a 50% chance that this occurs. Well, that'd be a pretty high chance for the a catalyst. So maybe it's only a 25% chance that this catalyst I think will happen will happen in sometime in the next 10 years. So now we've gone from a 20% profit boost catalyst being 25% likely. And so it's now only worth 5% extra to the value of the company. And then you have to then take that, amortize it over 10 years, and maybe it's only worth half a percent of value to the intrinsic value. So we've taken a 20% profit boost catalyst and once you add probabilities and take into account the time value of money, it only changes my intrinsic value estimate by half a percent. Well, that's negligible. It's basically nothing. Despite everything I said in there about the value of catalysts, we have a problem when we actually want to use it in our process. And so what happens is, is investing is not just about numbers. You can't actually use a catalyst to change what you think the intrinsic value of a company is. You have to assess a catalyst as something in the other category, something in the qualitative category. Catalyst is a way to help evaluate management. Catalyst is a way to evaluate business quality. Are you likely to have positive or negative business surprises? Things like that. It's like an X factor, a tiebreaker. If you have two investments that are relatively similar in what you think their intrinsic value is and one has a catalyst and the other one doesn't, well, maybe the catalyst is the, the one with the catalyst is maybe a slightly better idea, but it's hard to quantify that difference. And so 
I think you have to be really careful because if you're only looking for catalysts, you quickly become into a problem where you might overvalue a bad company because they maybe they don't look good on the numbers today, but potentially there becomes a catalyst would make the, that would make them look good on the numbers later. And that if it comes early enough, that multiple expansion could justify my purchase. I really want to encourage you not to do that. I think it's important to find companies that might have a catalyst, but not to pay for them. They need to be good companies. They need to be worth what you're paying for them today and also have the potential to be worth a lot more in the future if a catalyst comes through. And so those are two separate decisions. The first and most important decision is buying a company with a good hold return. The second decision is filtering between the companies that do have a good hold return and might also have a catalyst. The catalyst is not necessary. You can buy companies without a catalyst, but you can't justify buying companies that don't have a margin of safety and don't have a good hold return. So make sure your catalysts are extra. Make sure the catalyst is simply a bonus that you have in the whole scheme of things on top of it. And try not to pay up for the catalyst. Make sure you're getting them as a free call option. Catalysts are extremely valuable. I've already given an example how a catalyst has led to one of my businesses increasing its profitability on a look-through basis of 30 to 50% simply by one executed decision. And I also gave an example of how a catalyst can take you from a 7% trade return to a 15% trade return if it causes the multiple expand in five years instead of 10 years. If it's much faster, it could be even better. But you can't guarantee those. There's probabilities. Predicting the the future is fraught with uncertainty. So what is the role of a catalyst in value investing? To me, it's a tiebreaker. It's a bonus. It's the cherry on top. It's the free call option. It's the piece of your investing process that goes into the other, the X factor. That little piece that causes a great investment, a good investment idea to be a great investment idea. And I think it's the thing that can really add strong alpha as long as it's only the bonus on top of an otherwise good idea. Thank you for listening to this podcast. I hope it has provided value to you. Please be sure to hit that subscribe button and be sure to check me out on Twitter at Trey Henniger, where you can find all of my newest content that I'm putting out, whether on here, on YouTube, or in my newsletter. Thank you for listening. And until next time, stop paying fees, start building wealth. The DIY Investing Podcast is presented for general informational and entertainment purposes only. I have not considered your specific situation or risk profile, and I have not provided investment advice. The information presented on the DIY Investing Podcast should not be construed as investment advice. The views and opinions expressed on the DIY Investing Podcast are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect those of the show's host or sponsors. 
DIY Investing, its producers, sponsors, and host, Trey Henniger, shall not be liable for losses resulting from investment decisions based upon information or viewpoints presented on the DIY Investing Podcast.